It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to talk about Taiwan and tensions between China and the U.S., Over the past few months, Beijing has dramatically upped the number of warplanes it sent into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. It's a deliberate show of strength by China. Well, for two consecutive days, China has violated Taiwan's airspace by flying military jets around the self-governing island unannounced. Taiwan's Premier Su Chang has slammed the flight, saying they jeopardize regional peace. In her address on Taiwan's National Day, President Tsai Ing-wen said the island will continue to bolster its defences so no one can force it to accept the path of reunification that Beijing is laying. This comes at a time when relations between Beijing and Washington and the Biden administration are particularly fraught. A core part of Biden's China policy seeks to deter China's assertiveness in its neighbourhood as Beijing expands its military presence within what's called the First Island Chain, which stretches from Japan down past Taiwan and into the South China Sea. China has long viewed Taiwan as its own national territory. China's President Xi Jinping on Saturday all but declaring a policy. The complete reunification of our country must be and will be realized, he said. Our relationship with China will be competitive when it should be, collaborative when it can be, and adversarial when it must be. We're going to talk about all this with Amanda Shao, one of Crisis Group's Northeast Asia experts. We'll talk about what Beijing hopes to achieve with the flights and how they're perceived in Taiwan. We'll talk about the military buildup in the region and how US and Chinese militaries are more frequently rubbing up against one another. We'll also talk about how Beijing views its relations with Washington and with a virtual summit between Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping scheduled for sometime this year, we'll talk about prospects for dialing back tensions. Amanda, welcome on. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Richard. So, Amanda, could we start by you telling us a little bit about this surge in Chinese flights around Taiwan? What what exactly has happened? Yeah, sure, Richard. So basically what we saw in the beginning of October was this really significant spike in the number of Chinese military aircraft entering into the southwest corner of Taiwan's air defense identification zone, also known as an ADIZ. 
the number of the aircraft broke records three times. So on Friday, October 1st, there were 38 planes. On Saturday, October 2nd, there were 39 planes. And then on October 4, we saw 56 planes enter into uh, Taiwan's ADIZ. Now, prior to the streak, you know, the record for the largest number of Chinese military planes uh, was 28. So Chinese military planes have been entering Taiwan's ADIZ sort of almost daily for at least a year now. But this decision to dramatically increase the number of planes over such a short span really suggests that Beijing was deliberately showing its military strength. And what do you think Beijing is hoping to achieve with, as you say, this this show of strength? Well, first, there is the military value in conducting these flights. Um, it gives pilots in the People's Liberation Army, the PLA or China's military, more training opportunities. Um, and these flights are taking place in a strategically important area, which is just near the western entrance of the Bashi Channel, which is a key passageway for aircraft, for surface vessels, for submarines that are trying to cross between the Pacific uh, into the South China Sea or into the Taiwan Strait, into really what China considers its near seas. So it's a highly trafficked area where it's useful for the PLA to maintain presence uh, and to monitor other countries' activities. Um, so first, there's the sort of military value of these flights. But more so, through these military activities, China is really trying to demonstrate its commitment to its one China principle. So it's trying to show the world that its position, that there is only one China and that Taiwan is part of China, is resolute and unwavering. But it's also at the same time trying to signal to other actors that it is very unhappy and wary of the increasing levels of international attention and support to Taiwan, which ultimately helps to strengthen Taiwan's de facto independence and in turn challenges Beijing's long-term goal of unifying with Taiwan. Taiwan's international situation is quite peculiar. Only a handful of countries uh, recognize Taiwan. Um, and Beijing does condition normal diplomatic relations with China on dropping recognition of Taiwan's statehood. So these activities really are meant for four audiences. First, Beijing's trying to create pressures for Taiwan's military and Taiwan's population um, trying to get them to think twice about pursuing efforts to reduce Taiwan's current international isolation. Second, Beijing is really letting the Biden administration know this administration has characterized its commitment to Taiwan as rock solid. It's really letting them know that its determination to prevent Taiwanese independence is um, even more rock solid. Third, Beijing is trying to deter the wider international community from really getting too involved on the issue. And here I'm really referring to countries including Japan, to Lithuania, to the G7. You know, we've seen that the international community has really become much more concerned over maintaining stability in the Taiwan Strait and interested in, in engaging with Taiwan. Um, you know, Taiwan's done an excellent job in combating COVID-19. And so for, for instance, a number of countries have been interested in engaging with Taiwan on pandemic response. 
Um, and finally, Beijing is really playing to a domestic audience. It's really no coincidence that this uptick in activities took place at the same time as China's October 1st National Day. And um, this is important because as the U.S. and Taiwan have deepened their unofficial relationship, and as the international community has become more invested in Taiwan's future, hyper-nationalist voices in China have really begun to call on Beijing to respond more forcefully to what they see as clear provocations from Washington. And so we'll talk about the international politics of, uh, of it in a moment and, and the Biden administration's uh, China policy. But could you just say, Amanda, I mean, what are the main dangers in this increased air traffic in more Chinese warplanes flying through those areas? Yeah. So so like I had said, the, the Bashi Channel is really this key passageway for aircraft and for surface vessels and for submarines, including for U.S. aircraft and vessels that are trying to enter the South China Sea, meaning that this area that the PLA is flying through, which is the southwestern corner of Taiwan's ADIZ, and at the sort of western entrance of the Bashi Channel, it's a site for encounters um, involving Chinese and Taiwanese, but also U.S. aircraft as well. And we've seen in the media reports that some of these encounters can actually become aggressive if these aircraft are trying to drive or expel each other away. So there's been some commentary, certainly in the Western press, that this uptick in Chinese activity is another signal of the danger that China might seek to invade Taiwan. How is that risk viewed from Taipei itself? Right. And, you know, this has been um, a question that has been hotly discussed and, and debated in, in many capitals. So China's military flights are not by themselves an indication of an impending military attack on Taiwan. You know, there are reasons to believe that the risk of an invasion in the coming years, while rising, is not imminent. So, you know, we've seen that a number of U.S. officials and recently Taiwan's defense uh, minister come out with a number of assessments and prediction as to the risk of a Chinese invasion. Um, Admiral Phil Davidson, who is the former commander of U.S. Indo-PACOM, stated that the threat of a Chinese invasion is looming and could take place in the next six years. More recently, Taiwan's Minister of Defense said that by 2025, you know, China would be able to bring the cost and attrition of a full-scale invasion to its lowest. But, you know, I would argue that military capabilities alone don't really give us the full picture around how the leadership in Beijing weighs the risks and benefits of such a move. And it would be really a hugely significant and politically risky move for Beijing. You know, a successful Chinese military invasion is not guaranteed. It could result in a hugely costly war with the U.S. Um, and the international backlash that would result would likely derail other priorities that are more important to Beijing and to Xi Jinping himself, um, in particular domestic priorities. And importantly, it doesn't appear, at least judging from official rhetoric, that China has given up on its current approach of peaceful unification. You know, this is a phrase 
peaceful unification that Xi Jinping used in two speeches recently in his reference to Taiwan during his speech um, celebrating the Chinese Communist Party's 100-year birthday, and in a recent speech earlier just this month uh, when he was commemorating the Xinhai Revolution. And during this speech, it's actually quite notable what he said. He said that to achieve the reunification of the motherland by peaceful means is most in line with the overall interests of the Chinese nation, including the Taiwan compatriots. So let's talk a little bit about Washington, US policy and the Biden administration. The backdrop to this increase in Chinese flights is growing tension between China and Washington. We're nine months in now. How does the Biden administration frame their China policy? So the Biden administration has really made pretty clear through its rhetoric and through its actions that while its tactics might be different from those of the previous administration, its assessment of China as a strategic competitor um, has not changed. You know, Biden himself has in successive speeches described the competition with China as part of a larger battle between whether democracies or autocracies will shape the future of the world. Um, the U.S. interim national security uh, strategic guidance makes very clear that Washington considers the ways in which Beijing has leveraged its economic and military weight to achieve its re- regional and domestic objectives as evidence of China's threat to the liberal international order. And it makes quite clear in that same document that Washington's assessment is that China is the only country capable of such a sustained challenge. And so what does the policy actually look like? The Biden administration's approach to China, it attempts to acknowledge the complexities in the bilateral relationship. It offers to cooperate, to confront, and to compete simultaneously, uh, depending on the issue area they're talking about. And it has really prioritized forming coalitions with other democracies over shared concerns related to China, including around technology, around human rights, trade. And this coalition forming, it's been very clear, they've they've been very clear that it's meant to strengthen its, really, its bargaining position vis-a-vis China. Um, A key aspect of Washington's strategy is also to bolster the U.S.'s military deterrence including by deepening its cooperation with regional allies and partners. So, for instance, in September this year, we saw that the first leaders summit uh, of the Quad took place in person. And in that same month, the U.S., Australia and the U.K. signed a trilateral security agreement. Under this agreement, the U.S. uh, and the U.K. would help Australia acquire nuclear-powered submarines, which would augment Australia's capacity to operate far from its coast in areas like the South China Sea, the Taiwan Strait, uh, essentially in China's periphery. Um, We've seen that on its own, Washington has protested China's policies in Hong Kong and Xinjiang, including through sanctions. The administration has chosen to keep in place tariffs on goods from China that were adopted under the Trump administration, And it has signaled that a key priority will be to compete with China 
on technology. But while it's confronting and competing with China, the administration has also initiated dialogue with China and called for cooperation in areas like climate change and Afghanistan, really with very little success. And so when Biden first came in, from what I understand, many in Beijing were hoping for a sort of, you know, an improvement in relations after President Trump and all the sort of angry rhetoric between Trump and and, and Beijing. But I assume now that those hopes have, have sort of been confounded, that people are now looking at the Biden administration much less optimistically from Beijing? Yeah, I think to contextualize Beijing's disappointment, it's really important to know that there was this expectation when Biden was elected that, you know, while U.S.-China relations might not drastically improve, that it would at least get a little better. And after Biden and Xi had their first phone call in February, there was considerable optimism in Beijing about the bilateral relationship going forward. And the expectation was that the Biden administration would roll back some of what was done under the Trump administration as a way of setting the bilateral relationship back on track. Um, But that optimism was very quickly dispelled during the Anchorage meeting in March of this year, which involved the China's top foreign official, Yang Jiechi, and its foreign minister, Wang Yi, on the Chinese side, and Secretary of State Tony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan on the American side. The meeting was openly rancorous and saw Yang Jiechi basically rebuking U.S. officials for their condescending tone. It was really quite uh, remarkable to see that um, so publicly displayed. And so in many ways, China has actually found competition to be more intense under Biden because the Biden administration has pursued a more effective, a more coherent and systematic strategy that is multilateral and challenges China on multiple fronts at the same time. And fundamentally, it should be noted that Beijing views the threat that the U.S. poses in ideological terms. You know, it feels that its political system and the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party itself is under attack by the U.S. And what are you saying? That China views the way that the U.S. is framing it as ideological it doesn't itself view the struggle as ideological. It has an issue with the U.S. framing of it. So I think that what China is seeking is really for its political system. What they're seeking is a international system that has a place for that and that sees its system as legitimate and respects its system. And so as to the extent to which... um, China needs to change the international system to make room to feel that its system is respected. That is unclear as to the extent of those um, ambitions. What we haven't seen, though, is a sort of clear attempt by Beijing to export its system. So in that sense, you know, it's not ideological in the sense that Beijing is trying to impose its quite particular system. It's not really trying to export the system to other countries, but it is demanding a level of respect and acceptance of the system. Um, But, you know, I think another problem right now in the bilateral relationship is that Beijing is really very suspicious 
of this framework that the U.S. is offering, one in which the two countries would compete, confront, uh, and cooperate at the same time. And even in the latest exchange uh, between Jake Sullivan and Yang Jiechi in Switzerland, you see in the Chinese readout that Beijing is conditioning an improvement in the bilateral relationship on a change in the U.S.'s attitude and posture towards China. And it's likely that it prefers a formulation in which cooperation is, at least in principle, prioritized above and beyond confrontation and competition, even if the latter two continue to persist. And for China, before some sort of understanding is reached at the strategic level, it's really unlikely for Beijing to engage in any pragmatic cooperation. So, for instance, when the Biden administration offers to cooperate with China on Afghanistan, this really feels quite odd to China. They think, why would we want to cooperate when the U.S. has withdrawn from Afghanistan precisely so that it can better compete with us? And so we've talked, you've talked a little bit about some of the sort of global implications that it's very difficult at the moment for China to cooperate in the US in discrete areas like Afghanistan. I assume climate change is another one. But but what are sort of the implications in uh, Northeast Asia and, and particularly around what's called the first island chain, this this chain of islands that goes from Japan down through to the South China Seas. Militaries have long been in close proximity there. But as you talked about earlier, there are these increased what people call encounters. What is the danger of incidents that could potentially escalate? And how much more serious is it since this sort of escalation in U.S.-China tensions that started with Trump and has really continued with Biden? Yeah, I'd say that in the current political atmosphere, both sides will tend to imbue the other side's actions with really the worst intentions. They will see and understand and interpret the other side's actions um, with the worst assumptions. And that really just heightens the potential for miscalculation and misjudgment at the strategic level. At the same time, both sides' military presence has increased within the first island chain in the South China Sea and in the Taiwan Strait. So there is the potential for misinterpretation. The best example of this is probably from 2020. Um, According to the U.S. government, in the lead up to the U.S. presidential elections, Beijing had become increasingly concerned with a potential U.S. attack on the Spratlys, which is a part of the South China Sea. Uh, Chinese commentators at the time were warning that an attack was likely because they had assessed that Trump would use such an attack to help his re-election chances. And because if we think back to that time, U.S.-China relations had really deteriorated in the summer of 2020. The consulates in Chengdu and Houston had just been closed. The U.S. had announced a shift in its South China Sea policy, and U.S. reconnaissance activities in the area had increased. Um, But of course, the U.S. government never had these intentions. Um, So we've seen already how the sort of the current uh, hostile political environment can lead to misinterpretation. But there's also the potential for an incident uh, at sea or in the air to occur in which a U.S. and Chinese military vessel or aircraft collide. 
Um, the last time and the only time this has happened before was in 2001, when a U.S. reconnaissance plane and a Chinese fighter jet collided, resulting in the death of the Chinese pilot and the U.S. plane landing on Chinese territory. At that time, the bilateral relationship was fairly positive, uh, but nevertheless, it it did take three months of careful negotiations to resolve the political impasse and to get the U.S. plane and crew home. If such an incident were to occur today, the situation would likely escalate significantly. De-escalation and crisis management would be much more challenging. Once an incident was made public, decision makers on both sides would come under considerable domestic pressures to take tough public stances that reduce the space for accommodation in private. Right, because you're not talking about the US and China going to war, right? I mean, neither of them want that. What you're talking about is, a, is, is an incident that causes an escalation that worsens relationships and makes it much more difficult to, to calm incidents like that down again or to get the sides talking about how to avoid incidents in the future. Absolutely. I, you know, I don't think either government is interested or wants a war, but their ability to control these incidents from escalating has significantly decreased because of the current political atmosphere. So in the Taiwan Strait, in South China Seas, the US and China, they do have deconfliction mechanisms. So what do these look like and how do they stand the test of this increased activity? So guardrails do exist between the US and China, but they have been underutilized and they have been underdeveloped. Experts on both sides agree that the existing crisis management mechanisms are really insufficient for managing the new risks in the relationship. There is a set of non-binding bilateral rules in place that was signed in 2014. It's the 2014 Memorandum of Understanding between the U.S. and China. And they put in place rules that are supposed to make encounters at sea and in the air more safe and more professional. But those rules are not very detailed and they are non-binding. And there is some disagreement between the U.S. and Chinese as to where those rules apply, and particularly if they apply to the operations and interactions that are most likely to bring U.S. and Chinese military assets into close encounters and dangerous encounters. So the rules exist, but they could be more detailed and they could be made binding. And what are the type of incident that it's not clear if they apply to, but are the most dangerous? So Chinese analysts do not think that the U.S.-China rules of behavior apply to interactions or encounters that take place within the territorial sea. The territorial sea is uh, within 12 nautical miles of an island or of the mainland of a coastal state. And so China, because it doesn't think that the rules apply within the territorial sea, believes that the rules do not apply to U.S. freedom of navigation operations, which take place within 12 nautical miles of Chinese-held reefs in the South China Sea. And oftentimes, these close encounters are taking place 
precisely around U.S. freedom of navigation operations. Um, Chinese warships tend to follow and to monitor the U.S. warship that's conducting the phone up. Uh, and we've seen in recent years even attempts to expel the warship while it's conducting a freedom of navigation operation. And so that is an issue that deserves discussion bilaterally. So that's one challenge, but there's other challenges as well, right, in some of the, the, the hotlines and other, other mechanisms that the U.S. and China have? Yeah, I mean, so besides the rules, there are recurring dialogue mechanisms, defense dialogue mechanisms that have been in place since the late 90s, but those haven't yet fully resumed under the Biden administration. There are some signs that they will, however. One of them, the defense policy coordination talks, did take place a couple of weeks back, and, and that was progress. And on hotlines, um, you know, the Biden administration has made um, a point of raising its concerns about hotlines uh, in the media. Essentially, there is no real functioning hotline in place between the U.S. and China. Um, there is something called the Defense Telephone Link, which links up the Defense Ministry on the Chinese side with the Department of Defense on the U.S. side. But it really doesn't operate like a traditional hotline. You cannot pick up the phone and get your counterpart immediately. It's a line that allows the two sides to communicate after the two sides had scheduled the discussions. The line requires that one side schedule a discussion many days in advance before a conversation will take place on this defense telephone link. Now, that's not to say that it's not been useful. I want to make clear that the defense phone link has been useful. So for instance, the we talked about previously Beijing's anxieties that the U.S. would launch an attack on the Spratleys. U.S. officials at the time had used the defense phone link to communicate to their Chinese counterparts that they had no intention of launching such an attack. So the defense phone link has played its part in risk reduction. But nevertheless, the two sides should consider developing and establishing a hotline at the highest levels, probably not at the president, secretary general level, but just below it, um, so that there is a reliable means of direct and immediate communications should a crisis erupt. So there's the hotline. Presumably there's lots of other things that the US and China could do, but what are the main obstacles to that actually happening? Simply put, Washington and Beijing are not equally interested and this goes back to what we were saying about the Biden administration's preferred framing of the bilateral relationship, right? It's one where we compete, where we cooperate, and where we confront at the same time. And China's rejection thus far of this framing, it's linked to this. So the, the U.S. is interested in working with China on crisis management. That's been made clear through a number of statements by senior officials to the media. But it's interested in working with China on crisis management while at the same time that it is intensifying competition in the strategic and military spheres. Um, and it's arguing essentially that work on crisis management should not be hostage to strategic differences and that in fact it should be delinked 
And and this proposition is really rooted in the U.S.'s fairly successful experiences during the Cold War with the Soviet Union, where the two essentially did decide to delink crisis management from the overall strategic competition. But China finds this proposition counterintuitive, and it is primarily interested in crisis management as a means of reducing strategic tensions with the U.S. Um, Beijing is really reluctant to engage substantively without reaching some sort of understanding at the strategic level and believes that crisis management serves more American interests than Chinese ones. And the reason they think that is because the guardrails that would be put into place um, are aimed at interactions that are happening only on China's doorsteps. So essentially, these guardrails would reduce the risk for U.S. military operations happening in the South China Sea, in the Taiwan Strait, off of China's coast, um, operations that Beijing has always objected to and officially characterizes as provocative and threatening. And so it's unwilling to make it easier for the U.S. to continue operations that it has long opposed. And it fears that by signing up to more substantive mechanisms, it could in fact help to legitimize the operations it opposes and maybe even usher in more intense U.S. military operations. And so... Amanda, there have been sort of signs of uh, movement in US-China diplomacy over the past couple of months. And Biden and Xi Jinping spoke for the first time since that phone call you first talked about in February. They spoke for the first time, I think, since then in September. Then National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan met with Yang Jiechi, top Chinese diplomat, in October. They're talking now about a virtual summit between Biden and Xi so what should we hope for from that summit? And, and do you think it's likely to come out of it? Um, I think it's very positive that there is an agreement to hold this summit in order to move the bilateral relationship, to, to bring it back on track, requires a leader-to-leader discussion that has so far lacked, has been lacking um, in the first 10 months of the Biden administration. So I think it's something that is extremely positive. What will happen is less clear. Um, I don't see fundamental changes to the U.S.'s position on China. I'm not sure that China will fundamentally shift its position on the U.S. However, as we discussed before, the form and the optics around these things are often very important to the Chinese. And so if it's possible for the two leaders to reach some sort of acceptable articulation of what the bilateral relationship is and looks like, that both sides can take home and, you know, uh, and deliver to their domestic audiences, um, 
an articulation that can satisfy both domestic audiences, then that would be major progress. Then that opens the door to more pragmatic cooperation at the working levels. And what is urgently needed as well is a conversation between the U.S. Secretary of Defense, Austin, and Defense Minister Wei, or the Vice Chairman of the Central Military Commission, Xu. So far, we've seen that the highest level defense officials of the two countries have yet to speak to each other, and that is a problem. If she and Biden can get together for a virtual summit, I think it'll also pave the way for a meeting um, between uh, Lloyd Austin and the counterpart that the two sides agree is most appropriate. And that will be very important for resuming discussions on issues like crisis management and risk reduction. Amanda, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Richard. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thanks very much to our producer, Sam Mednick. Thanks also to Finn Johnson, who helps out with production. And a huge thanks, of course, to all our listeners. If you like the show, please do give us a rating or a review. Don't hesitate to send us any questions or comments. And I hope you'll join us again next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.